0: Father, we stop tonight and we thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, We thank you that we can meet and that we can study. Uh, We thank you that we have access to the scriptures. And Lord, there's things in the book of Revelation that are hard for us to understand. Uh, There's things in the book of Revelation that are very easy to understand, but they're challenging to us. And uh, they confront the way that we think and the way that we feel and maybe even the way that we live. And so we pray tonight that you would give us understanding, and we pray that you would give us humility to sit under the authority of your word, and uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, there were notes in the back. If you need to pick up notes, you can grab some of those. Uh, We're talking about Revelation 15 and 16 tonight, so you can open your Bible to Revelation 15 and 16. Uh, If you need to catch up from previous weeks, we've got the audio posted and we've got video posted. uh, So you can always go back and catch up on previous weeks. If you need notes, some of you have asked me the last couple of uh, times we've met, can you get notes from previous weeks? Yes, I'm not saving those each week. I'm not stacking them up, uh, but I can get those for you uh, if you need those from a previous week. Um, Just when you thought... You had everything in Revelation figured out. You get a letter in the mail. I got a letter in the mail. Monday. And I thought you guys might enjoy this. This came from uh, no name. So you know it's going to be good when there's no name up on the return address. Uh, From Arizona. And by the way, you'd be amazed at where mail comes to pastors from all over the United States. Random people. So this came from uh, L... Mirage, Arizona, to Emmanuel Baptist Church. So uh, I read this, and the top of it says, who are the old wineskins? And it talks about the parable about uh, Jesus saying nobody puts new wine and old wineskins and old wine and new wineskins, you don't do it that way. Um, I'll just give you the highlights of this letter. Uh, For most of the last 2,000 years, the vast majority of churches have no idea what this parable is about. Uh, So it's good. We have somebody that has figured out something that no one in all of church history has figured out. So that's helpful. Uh, It talks about the abomination of desolation and the mark of the beast. So it gets you excited right out of the gate. Then it talks about Revelation, chapter 1, 2, and 3. And it says, most churches have no idea that the seven churches of Revelation 1, 2, and 3, which actually, it's 2 and 3, it's not 1 and 3, but 1, 2, and 3 are a perfect prophecy of the entire church age and that these days are all Laodicea. So, actually, a lot of people think that. A lot of people hold the view that those seven churches represent epics in order and that we're in the last one. Of course, everybody thinks we're in the last one. It's not exciting to be in the second to last one. So everybody thinks we're in the last one. Uh, They say nobody understands that, but a lot of people think that. So then it talks about the two witnesses. Remember, we talked about the two witnesses not that long ago. And I said to you, I think this is a reference to the church and maybe you bought that or you didn't buy it, but I laid out my my reasoning for that. Uh, I've heard a lot of explanations about who the two witnesses are. You remember all the names I put up on the screen? It's this and this and this and this and this and this. Apparently, the two witnesses, I've never heard this, are, they misspelled it, Augustine of Hippo. So, St. Augustine is the first witness, and the second witness is George Fox, who was the founder of the Quakers in the 1600s. And this person makes the brilliant observation, I don't know if you knew this, but in between the lives of Augustine and George Fox, 1,260 years, which is one of those numbers in Revelation, except in Revelation it's 1,260 days, but details are, you can change the details. 1,260 years between them, the Quakers of the 1600s, We're the Philadelphia church age, and now we're in the Laodicea church age, and there's all sorts of mysteries unraveled in this letter. And if you would like more information, uh, there's a cell phone you could call. I thought about calling it this week, but there's a cell phone listed. We should just call it right now. Live stream, here we go. And uh, No, I'm not giving Hunter the number. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Okay, honestly, when I read this, I thought, Who in the class would have sent this? Because this is some crazy stuff. So, anyways, you never know. You just never know. You're all dumber for having heard that. So, on a serious note, uh, let's start with a quote as we think about these two chapters. This comes from Nancy Guthrie. Uh, This is the book our ladies worked through. The Bible reveals a God who, throughout history, has poured out wrath on his enemies. To some, that seems rather primitive, perhaps inconsistent with a God who is love. Perhaps we think the descriptions of his wrath are too harsh, too black and white, too vindictive, or that some who experience his wrath don't really deserve it. So you've heard these arguments all sorts of different ways. People don't want to believe in a God who's angry or wrathful towards sin. We'd rather ignore God's wrath, soften God's wrath, perhaps even scrub it. But here we are in Revelation, and it, the book of Revelation, simply won't let us ignore it, that is, God's wrath. So I'll just be honest with you about Revelation 15 and 16. These two chapters, uh, maybe as much as any in the book of Revelation, are a valuable test for your theological backbone And your theological metal. To see what you're made of. Because if. If. Your ultimate authority. Is your own thinking. Reasoning. Rational thought process. About what God ought to be like. And how he ought to treat people. You're probably going to be uncomfortable. With these two chapters. Because they are very direct. In talking about God's wrath. If however. Your ultimate authority Your solid foundation is the Bible. It's not that these things are just easy to process, but it's that you come away saying, that's what God has said about himself, and so that's what I will believe about him. And more than that, you'll actually celebrate who God is. You won't be embarrassed about who he is, you won't feel uneasy about who he is. You won't feel like you need to apologize to people for how God has revealed himself to be. But you'll actually rejoice in his character. So, a few introductory things and we'll jump in. The book of Revelation contains seven sevens. We've been talking about that throughout this study. I've laid out for you the basic outline of the book. There's a, an opening section and a closing section. Then you've got these seven sevens and you've got chapter four and five is this, this foundational vision of the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And it sets the tone, chapter 4 and 5, sets the tone for the vision of God and the vision of Jesus that carries throughout the, the entire book of Revelation. Super important, and we'll talk about uh, a parallel in our chapters back to these chapters, uh, chapter 4 and 5, in a minute. We're here with the plagues and the bowls. And I'm just saying up front, As we read this section, it talks about this seven. Sometimes it calls them plagues, and sometimes it calls them bowls, and those are used interchangeably. So as we talk about these tonight, the plagues are the bowls, the bowls are the plagues. Both of those words are used in Revelation 15 and 16. Uh, If you want to make sense of this group of sevens, these two chapters... You have to understand them in a fully biblical context. And so very quickly, this isn't the main thing we're talking about, but i got to lay out a few ideas that you need to be square on. Number one, the Old Testament speaks clearly about the cup, or you could say the bowl, of God's wrath. And the image in the Old Testament is that there is this vessel, this container, That has this wine in it. And God is going to make his enemies drink this wine. And in the image. This wine is his wrath. It's his fury. It's his anger. And it runs all the way through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Uh, It's all throughout the prophets. That God is going to make the nations drink this cup of his wrath. And you need to understand that. Uh, That image was super strong in the Jewish imagination. This understanding that God's wrath could be compared to a cup or a bowl that he's going to pour out or that he's going to make people drink. A parallel in the New Testament to this Old Testament idea is Jesus praying in Gethsemane. And the prayer that he prays is essentially, if it be possible, let this cup pass. And when you read that on the lips of Jesus in Gethsemane, you understand that he's not saying, I don't want nails in my hands. He's not saying, I don't want the spear in my side. He's not saying, I don't want the crown of thorns. What he's saying is, what what has him concerned is the wrath of the Father, this cup that's going to be poured out on him, and that's the matter that he's praying about. So you see that in Gethsemane. Uh, Thinking about Revelation 15, which we're going to read here in just a moment, the function of Revelation 15 is similar... To the function of Revelation 4 and 5. So Revelation 4 and 5. It doesn't really fit with the sevens does it? Like if you paid attention to the outline. We said there's seven sevens. But there's also this one vision. That's just kind of the foundational. I know it's not first. But it's the foundational vision of who God is and what he's like. And what we're going to read in Revelation 15 serves the exact same function for what we're going to read in Revelation 16. Chapter 15 is just a foundational baseline that's being set before you get in and start to process what John is seeing in this vision of these bowls being poured out. So it's just a foundational vision, um, and there's a lot of parallels. You'll notice the parallels. Chapter 4 and 5 and chapter 15 talk about a sea of glass. It's the only place in the book that that shows up. Chapter 4 and 5 have people singing and worshiping. That happens in chapter 15. Chapter 4 and 5 have people overwhelmed with God's glory. Same thing happens in chapter 15. So it's just a foundational uh, piece that helps us process these bowls that are in some ways hard to process. So I'm not going to read a lot of these quotes to you tonight. Schreiner just makes the point that God's holiness is the framework for understanding the bowl judgments. Before you get to 16 and the seven bowls, you've got to understand and be regrounded in the holiness of God. Otherwise, the the bowl judgments just seem completely irrational and over the top. So we're grounded in chapter 15. Uh, Next, the question of Revelation 6.10 is still hanging over this book. So I know it's been an awful long time since we talked about Revelation 6.10, but in that vision, in the seals, the seven seals, one of the seals that is broken involves John seeing saints in heaven who are praying, and they ask God a question, and the question is, how long? How long is it going to be until you bring vengeance to those who killed us and those who persecuted us and those who opposed us? when we were on the earth they're praying in heaven glorified completely sanctified believers they are praying that God would pour his judgment out and that question's still hanging over the book because when we read about the seals and we read about the trumpets and we read about the conflict in 12 13 14 all of that stuff had some measure of incompleteness to it Uh, the seals were a fourth and the (laughs) Uh, The trumpets were a third, and there wasn't always a great degree of finality or totality in judgment, and that's about to change in this chapter. So that question is still hanging out there. How long until God brings judgment on those who dwell on the earth? Next, uh, there's an escalation of intensity from the seals to the trumpets to the balls. So if you're not good at fractions, just trust me. These numbers get bigger as you go. You start off and... The seals affect a fourth of everything, and then the trumpets affect a third of everything. So there's an escalation there, and when we get to these bowls in a minute, it's total. Everything, nothing is, is held back. God's wrath is poured out in its fullest measure, and uh, Ladd, who I love, talks about that. He says there's parallels As you think about the bowls, there's parallels with the seals and parallels with the trumpets. And there's parallels, very close parallels to the plagues in Egypt. But they're much more severe and they're much more intense. So things are ramping up uh, in this section. Uh, Next, the plagues and the bowls lead to a description of the final destruction of God's enemies. So I'm just making the point that as you're reading through Revelation, we're in 15 and 16... When you get to 17 and 18, it is a thorough and complete description of God destroying his enemies finally, fully, completely. 17 and 18 just carry over this theme of God's wrath that we're we're beginning to talk about uh, very concretely in 15 and 16. So, Poitras makes the point that uh, as this moves through the book of Revelation, we're focusing more and more on the second coming And Schreiner agrees. He says there's some overlap with the seals and the trumpets, but these bowls focus on the end and the final climactic judgment God pours out on humans. uh, It may be that all seven of these bowl judgments describe from various angles the nature of the last judgment. So this is what we're saying. The book has been boiling. And it's hot with the seals and it gets hotter with the trumpets. And then 12, 13, 14 describe this conflict between the church and the forces of evil and Satan and uh, ultimately an antichrist, but also small a antichrists, ultimately a false prophet, but also small fp, small false prophets. But it's building and it's boiling and the heat is ramping up and it's about to come to the end here in 15 and 16. So, let's read 15. It's a pretty short chapter and then we'll try to wade through it and build to chapter 16. So this is Revelation 15.1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary, the tent of witness in heaven, was open. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So that's pretty intense vision. And we'll just try to work through it and make sense of it. Uh, John starts off saying that he saw, this is important, another sign. He says, I saw another sign. And when he says that, you should remember the woman and the dragon, back in Revelation chapter 12. The woman and the dragon back in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 to 6. So if you go back to Revelation 12:1, John says, I saw a sign in the heavens. And then in verse 3, he says, I saw another sign. And he sees this woman clothed with the sun, The stars, the moon, all that business. And he sees a great red dragon. And everything that follows in that section, 12, 13, 14, describes the conflict between the people of God and Satan and the forces of evil. That's the last time that he said, I saw a sign. And now he says, I saw another sign. And so what he's saying to you is, I told you about this conflict. And how it's boiling over in 12, 13, 14. Now I'm going to talk to you about how that conflict comes to resolution with this third sign in chapter 15. Just a, a grammatical note, really, really quick. The word sign in Revelation is only found three times. Saw the woman clothed with the sun. Saw the great red dragon. And I saw these seven angels with the bowls. That's the only quote-unquote signs that he sees. So he sees the conflict, chapter 12. Now in chapter 15, he's saying, here's the resolution to the conflict. The resolution of that conflict is God's wrath is going to be poured out on his enemies. The word signs, plural, these are the only references to signs, plural. And if you look them up, signs, plural, is always used of the false prophet and the unholy trinity and their false signs and their deceptive signs And every time that word occurs in Revelation, it's talking about something that deceives people and leads them astray. So just an interesting note on how John uses the same word in the singular and then how he uses it in the plural. So he sees a sign, and it's seven angels with seven plagues. And this is really important to understanding this section. John says, with these, they're the last plagues, and the wrath of God is going to be finished. That's straight out of 15.1. These are the last, and with them the wrath of God is finished. So look, the big question that people wrestle with with the seals and the trumpets and the bowls is, when is all this stuff happening? That's what everybody wants to debate about Revelation, right? When is this stuff happening? And what I've laid out to you is that with the seals and the trumpets, it's the entire period between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. It's things that mark this interadvental period. I'm saying to you, when you get to the bowls, I think the focus really is on the end. I think we've moved beyond the whole interadvental period, the ascension to the return. And now we're talking about God's wrath as it's being poured out on the on, on the earth in the end, however you want to define that, pre, post, mill, trib, all that stuff, sort it out yourself, but I think John's talking about now we're moving to the very, very end, and the key words are in verse 1, these are the last, this is it, there's no more coming after this, this is it, and with them the wrath of God is finished, and when we get to 17 and 18, there's more wrath being poured out But I think 17 and 18 are expanding and giving more detail to what we're reading here in 15 and 16. So these are the last, and with these, the wrath of God is finished. And everything that we're about to read is total. There's no fourth. There's no third. Everything is affected, and this is complete. Uh, A couple of things you need to note that are seconds in the book of Revelation. For the second time, John sees the sea of glass. Sees it in chapter 4. Sea of glass. When we did Revelation 4, I laid out for you, I think, six or seven views of what the sea of glass is. Really, when you tie it to Revelation 15, I think the sea of glass is a picture of God's holiness and how God's holiness sets him apart from sinful creatures. It's an impassable barrier. So most likely, the sea of glass represents an impassable separation between the holy God and sinful humanity. Now here's the beautiful thing in our passage, if you, if you were paying attention. There's a sea of glass. Now it's mingled with fire, which is kind of a scary image to think about. Makes you think about God's judgment but there's a whole group of people standing right there beside the sea and they're singing praise to God. And the image in this chapter, Revelation 15, is that this separation is no longer keeping a certain group of people from God's presence. They're just right there singing and worshiping. Any other stories in the Bible where you can think about people standing beside a body of water praising God for His judgment? Sound like the Exodus? People walk through the Red Sea They turn around, they watch God destroy Pharaoh's army. Moses and Miriam both break into a song and the people worship. It's the same image in Revelation 15. These are people who have been saved by God's grace and His power and His mercy. And they're worshiping Him And this breach between a holy God and sinful people. At least for these folks, these redeemed, uh, has been bridged. Conquering. It says that these have conquered. or Depending on your translation, it might say that they've overcome. This is an important theme in Revelation. It serves as the summary call on our lives as the people of God. So if you came away with nothing else uh, in terms of an action list or a to-do list from the book of Revelation, the one big thing the book calls you to do is conquer. That's the call. Conquer. Overcome. It doesn't mean you take up arms. It doesn't mean you get in fist fights. It doesn't mean you're contentious. It means you're faithful to God, you don't chase after false gods, you love the truth, you live a life of godliness. That's what it means to conquer and overcome in the book of Revelation. And that's what these people beside the sea have done. They've conquered. Uh, If you remember Revelation 2 and 3, all of those churches were called to conquer. To the one who conquers, I'll give you this. To the one who conquers. I'll give you this. So, Mounts is very helpful here, and I will read this quote in its entirety. These who stand on the crystal pavement are those who have emerged victorious over the beast. They've not abandoned their faith or succumbed to the threats of Antichrist. They're the overcomers or the conquerors. To whom the seven letters hold out promise of eating the tree of life, protection from the second death, Hidden manna, authority over the nations, white garments, honor of being a pillar in the temple of God, and the privilege of sitting with Christ on His throne. These are the ones who are standing beside the sea. And they're singing. And what are they singing? The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And as John describes it that way, I think it's a beautiful, biblical way of saying there's something old in this story and there's something new in this story. The old is that that's exactly what Moses and the people did when God saved them from Egypt. They came out and they worshiped and they sang and they praised God for His grace and His mercy in their lives and for His wrath and His judgment on the Egyptians. That's what these people are doing as they stand beside the sea. And there's something new because it's not just the song of Moses, it's also the song of the Lamb. And that's kind of how the New Covenant and the Old Covenant relate. You look at it and you say... It's new. It's not completely, entirely, categorically different. It's the same thing that God has done in the past, but it's in a new and a fuller and in a complete way, this redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. So, singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. So, that's one second. Sea of glass shows up for the second time. Here's another second. For the second time in Revelation, John saw the heavenly tabernacle, or you could say the temple. And he sees it once in chapter 11 and once in chapter 15. And the idea behind this is maybe best explained in the book of Hebrews. When the book of Hebrews talks about the tent and the tabernacle. And it describes the tent that Moses made as a copy of what existed in the heavenly places. And the idea is that the real thing is in heaven... This temple or this tabernacle. And Moses caught a vision of that. God showed him that and said build something like it on an earthly level. And John sees the real thing and it's opened. And I just want to make a couple of really important points. If you look in Revelation chapter 15. uh, He sees the sea of glass. Verse 2. And all those who had conquered are there. And they're singing. And they sing a song here. Uh, He looked, and the sanctuary was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the angels. So the angels are not acting on their own authority. They start off in this tabernacle, in this tent, in this temple, and they're coming out from God's presence. And verse 7 says, the four living creatures gave them these bowls full of the wrath of God. So in the vision, the angels are going to be involved in executing God's wrath, but it's not their wrath, it's God's wrath. They come out from God's presence and they do what God has granted them to do. He's working through means in this vision, but it's God's wrath uh, that's being poured out on those who dwell on the earth. So the imagery of golden bowls uh, connects the wrath of God to the prayers of the saints. This is an odd thought for us. And this is something I really think you ought to take time to wrestle with. But the image here connects God's wrath to our prayers. Now usually we think about our prayers and we think, well, we're called to pray that God would save people. We're called to pray that God would be merciful to people, that he would be gracious to people. Jesus taught us to pray things like that, and that's true. But there's also an idea in prayer in the New Testament and the Old, by the way, in praying that God would bring justice on those who deserve it. And this is what I'm saying to you. If you go back to Revelation 5, 8, people are praying, and it describes angels taking the prayers of God's people as in incense bowls. So prayers and bowls are kind of mixed up in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. When you get to chapter 6, verse 10, we've already talked about this. They're praying how long until you judge those who dwell on the earth. They're just outright asking God how much longer because this is ridiculous. That's the implication. You need, to, you need to judge these people. And God doesn't rebuke them for the request. He doesn't say, hey, hey now, simmer down. That's not a nice thing. Didn't you read the Gospels? Don't you know you're not supposed to pray like that? He says, just wait a little bit longer because it is going to happen. He is going to answer that prayer. And then when you get to Revelation chapter 8, God's judgment and His wrath is directly again connected with this idea of bowls and the prayers of His people. So all these ideas are intertwined in Revelation. Uh, You may have noticed that as John sees this temple, this tabernacle, um, it's shut. It's closed. There's no access to it. And I think what John's describing and seeing it closed is that the time for salvation is past and the time for final judgment has come. Temple is closed. I think it's another reason to understand these bowls as the end. John's describing God's wrath being poured out at the end. This temple is closed for a time. Now, before we get to 16, let's just talk about this prayer uh, or this song. In Revelation 15. We kind of skipped over that. Uh, Verse 3 and 4. Great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. O King of the nations. That's Hebrew parallelism. They're singing and saying the same thing. In two different ways. It's just restating the same basic idea. And the basic idea is. The things that God does. Are great and and amazing. You need to know that before you get to chapter 16. Because if you don't have that nailed down, you may come to chapter 16 and say, that sounds a little bit over the top. And chapter 15 is grounding you, saying, No, it's great and it's amazing. And then it's saying, His ways are just and true. He's not overreacting to anything in chapter 16. He is just and he's true. In everything that he does, in all of his ways, he's the Lord God, the Almighty, he's the king of the nations. So those lines say the same thing two ways. Then there's a question. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? And the obvious answer to that is what? Everyone's going to fear and glorify in the end. And you're about to read how that comes about. Why are they going to fear and glorify? Number one, he's the only holy one. That's kind of a redundant statement. You alone are holy. Holy implies alone. But it's emphasizing he's holy and he's the only holy one. Uh, all the nations are going to come worship and your righteous acts have been revealed. What God does, his acts, you've got to get grounded in this, it's righteous. It's not excessive. It's not over the top. It's not mean-spirited. But it's righteous. So you've got to be grounded in that song of worship. Before you move on to chapter 16.